the people part is the most important piece of it that if you don't have people following the same direction in terms of your spend culture, it's just, it, it's going to be a real challenge. You know, if you hire somebody that is very cost centric and loves cost efficiency, but you place them into an organization where that's not as important, that's just not going to jive. That's not really going to work. That it's really about making sure that the people fit the system. And um, it's a beautiful thing, but it's also a messy thing that we're all complicated creatures, right? And so it's really easy to write a standard operating procedure, a system. It's really easy to put some of those things in place, but the people part of it is, is probably the most challenging, but also the most important, in my opinion. Hi, I'm Danny. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole for what we call spend culture. Welcome back to the Spend Culture Stories podcast. This is Nicole, and today we are joined by Mason Brady, the Director of Finance and Supply Chain at Homegrown Organic Farms. Welcome, Mason. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to do this. Me as well. So let's just start out by talking a little bit more about the people side of finance. In your opinion, what do you think is the most important thing when it comes to cultivating a healthy spend culture? Is it people, processes, or systems? I think people is the hardest thing to change. Sometimes if you can't hire right, it causes a lot of complications because it's really hard to change people's mindset in regards to how things should function and work. I do think it's possible, but I I think it often takes years and years for them to change their mindset about how something should operate in one way versus the way that they've operated for maybe 20 to 30 years of their life. So yeah, the people part is the most important piece of it that if you don't have people following the same direction in terms of your spend culture, it's just, it's going to be a real challenge. You know, if you hire somebody that is very cost centric and loves cost efficiency, but you place them into an organization where that's not as important, that's just not going to jive. That's not really going to work. That it's really about making sure that the people fit the system. And um, it's a beautiful thing, but it's also a messy thing that we're all complicated creatures, right? And so it's really easy to write a standard operating procedure, a system, it's really easy to put some of those things in place, but the people part of it is is probably the most challenging, but also the most important, in my opinion. That's a great point to make and really interesting for my perspective. I work in people and culture, and I always say that people are the hardest to predict, and we all have our own individual lives, and we all have our own things that we care about. And so it's refreshing to hear that you feel the same way coming from a finance background. Yeah. Now, this is a simple question, but given that a lot of our listeners are finance professionals that are just starting out in their careers, could you tell us what the difference is between FP&A and a typical accountant? And maybe let us know a little bit about how you decided on what career path you wanted to take. Sure. A typical accountant, in my mind, is um, somebody who really focuses on doing the posting of transactions. So it tends to be more rules-based. It tends not to be so much forward-looking, but rather ensuring that the historical transactions are recorded appropriately versus FP&A is much more about forecasting and strategy and budgeting and and looking into the future to help um, decision makers make those decisions. 
So that's really, the, I, I think, the biggest, the biggest area of difference is a typical accountant is looking at historical pieces of information and trying to make sense of them while the FB&A is is taking that reporting and those recordings that uh, the accountants do, and they're trying to project something forward so that basically they can define how a company can continue to grow or make decisions, et cetera. That second part of the question, how do you decide on what career path you want to go? I kind of found what I'm passionate about. In reality, I started in the operations of the of, of this industry. And over time, I just kept learning more about the accounting and finance functions. And even though um, I'm still very involved in the operations and supply chain of a business, I felt like more of my passion resided in the finance and accounting field. And so I've used my experience to ultimately help me be better in, in the finance and accounting roles because I bring a perspective of knowing how the business really works and how decisions are made more so on a ground level. And to be honest, I just really kind of followed my passions. I felt like I have to be clear, I'm not really an accountant. I would say that I've gotten the accounting skills and I've tried to continue to perfect those so that I can help my team as much as possible and help make decisions and lead them. But I enjoyed much more about making the strategic decisions that you know a CFO type of person would make uh, or CFO type of role would make. And so I just kept focusing along that path that, okay, how do I continue to better myself so that I fit more so within that CFO slot one day. So I just continued to build myself up and take my experience and try to add things on top of that that would be valuable. But that's really how I decided on what I wanted to do is I, I grew up in operations. And I think, you know, I think there's a lot of value for a lot of people to do that because you get a view and a perspective on the, uh, the ground level of the organization. But from then, I just kind of followed what I was actually really excited about. And that was finance. That's awesome. I love to hear that. And I like that you pointed out following the things that you're excited about and that you're passionate about and keeping an open mind to different opportunities. And I think the way that you explain the difference between those two key functions is really helpful. So thank you for that. Yeah. Now, I know oftentimes different departments like finance and operations could have conflicting needs. So as a finance leader, how do you bridge the gap between departments like that or even departments like finance and procurement? The biggest thing is to not act like we know it all. <laughs> um, humility is a really big thing. And that means that you have to be willing to go learn why people uh, perform the way that they do in their jobs or do or make the decisions they make. And you really want to take the time to learn that well. So ultimately, you need to have a really inquisitive mind and a really humble heart and mindset to go and learn what they do and why they do it. There's a lot of reasons for it. I, I've never come across a business that made decisions for a completely irrational reason. There's usually a rational reason to most things. Um, you just kind of have to unpack it a bit. But I think the biggest thing is, is that Finance really needs to go in with an inquisitive mindset of just wanting to understand that business function better, not with the mindset we need to go change it or we think it could be done better. We think it could be done in a much more cost efficient manner or whatever the case is. Don't go into it with that mindset. You really just want to focus on learning, sitting down with the people, trying to shadow them in their jobs and just learn what they do and trying to be valuable to them, trying to ultimately sell what you can bring to the table for them to help make their life easier. So I think that's the way that bridging the gap really needs to start is just being willing to learn and legitimately learn what they do, you know, not with a secret agenda behind it. And I think 
as you learn what they do, at that point in time, you'll be able to take your experience and your knowledge and combine it with what you've learned about what they do. And then you could add value, but with the intention that you're trying to create win-win situations for everybody. You're not trying to come in and tell them how to do their job or anything of the sort, but you're trying to help create value with them. And I think that they're going to be a lot more receptive to what you're saying if you've started out in that humble manner of just seeking to learn from them and trying to understand what they do a bit more. I, I think that that's how it really has to start. That's how you create that level of trust. And so, you know, that's the big thing is you want to create trust. So when you're trying to explore, really be humble about it that, hey, you know, go ask the question, hey, you know, I, I wanted to learn more about why, how this works. Can, can I sit with you for a couple of days and, and learn about that? That's the best way I think that anyone can start to bridge that gap. And then you can expand upon it further. And I think, like I said, that that second piece of it is really trying to add value to it at that point. So you kind of, again, you bring your experience and your perspective and add it with what you've learned about them. But you kind of need to almost become a salesman to them at that point that, hey, we're here to create value with you and to help you grow the business. And so make yourself available just like a salesman would, not like a pushy kind of used car salesman by any means, but rather, you know, a more, mm-hmm. a longer term thinking salesperson that is focused on, you know, hey, I, I want to understand your business so that we can create something valuable together. Um, and that's, so that's really what I feel like is needed to, to bridge that gap. I like that. I like that you touched on the humility piece as well. That's actually one of our core values here at Procurify. And I think that it has allowed us to get so much further and really be empathetic and understanding to other people's roles and what they're doing. And, you know, the reality is at the end of the day, we're all trying to work towards the same goal. So being able to kind of put that aside and understand and listen, I think that's a great point to make. And I I definitely agree with you. Yeah, no, it's great that your core value is humility. Actually, our, our core value at Homegrown Organic Farms is humility as well. So it's it's really, really important. I think it's a, it's a strong suit of leadership for sure. Absolutely. So talking about leadership, is there a finance leader in particular that you look up to? And if so, what are the qualities of about this person that really kind of inspire you? You know, it, th- this was when I was when I was looking at the questions prior to our discussion. Uh, this was a tough one for me. You know, <laughs> I don't think people you know have too many posters like CFOs on the wall. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't think a lot of people when they grow up they aspire to necessarily be a CFO. I'm sure that there's some out there that do, mm-hmm. and I think it's awesome if you do, but. That was a tough question for me to answer. I would say maybe not necessarily a finance leader, but somebody that came to mind. And, you know, if you kind of took apart and took away all of the controversy related with Facebook, I felt like Sheryl Sandberg, just as a COO, not necessarily a CFO, but a COO was, is actually a really good example. And from the aspect that she's probably the best known number two role in the entire world as COO. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact is, is, she compliments very well to Zuckerberg. And again, I don't necessarily agree with some of the things that Facebook has done as a company, but it's just the reality is, is that she's a very influential person and compliments her CEO well. That's something to look up to is the way that she's able to lead a big part of the organization. And she is very influential. I think more finance leaders probably need to aspire to have that same level of influence from a strategy standpoint. So I wouldn't say that I necessarily look up to Sandberg immensely. It's just, I think that that's a really great example of what I feel more finance leaders can become. And then to be honest, I've had some really great mentors over the course of my career. And one of my current ones um, is Dave Stuke. He was the previous CEO of a bank and um, he's one of our board directors for our company. 
Mm-hmm. And so he has a really strong finance background. And I just, uh, you know, I've learned a lot from him. And what I have found is just his humility and his willingness to listen and care is one of the most immense things. And I, I, I hope I touched on that a lot earlier, or I got my point across, because I really think that those aspects of seeking to listen and care to people is one of the strongest leadership uh, skills that you can have. And so those qualities actually make him influential. His voice is well heard because people know that he cares and they can trust him. And so in terms of people that I guess, it, you know, where finance can go, Sandberg is one of them, but the qualities are, are definitely being an influential person, but somebody that you feel like you can trust and that you can, that is humble and uh, able to complement other skill sets well. I like that you, I mean, two things mentioned someone who maybe isn't necessarily in finance, because I think we can learn a lot from people even outside of our field. And, you know, when you expose yourselves to different people and their ways of doing things, that's where the greatest learning comes from. And same with the mentors. I've heard from a lot of our guests on our podcast that their mentors have really inspired them. And I think having those people in your life that you can look up to and um, are willing to teach you and you're willing to learn from them is really, really critical. Yeah, I completely agree. So if you had to describe the spend culture of homegrown organic farms, what would it be? Probably leans a lot more liberal. (laughs) Our business has been built upon relationships. We're a marketing and distribution company. And so, you know, we're not, we don't have a whole lot of assets ourselves. And our business model is that we provide a service to growers. We sell and pack their fruit on behalf of them so that growers can just focus upon growing the fruit and then we get their fruit to market. That's really where we fit into the value chain. And so given that our business is highly relational, so we have a culture that's highly relational. And that means that I was talking about with our CEO the other day that we have a pretty liberal business meals budget for the fact that we see business meals, um, even between coworkers as a really great way that people can get to know each other and to interact with each other and spend time with each other and, and build that trust that's needed for every department to really work well. And so we don't really have a budget for business meals. We just kind of let it go as it needs. And as long as the business is growing, we you know say, hey, we don't really have a problem. So we have some things in place, but I, obviously we build our budget, but we look at variances against our budget. And we just try to make sure that we're not massively off track or that there's something really wrong going on. But otherwise, it's pretty much people can do as they need. And For us, it's really important because a big part of our job is to ensure that we get the best possible return back to our growers. And that's who we work for. And a part of that is it's a double-edged sword. That means that we can both reduce costs and we can find really good programs with our customers to to sell the fruit to. So, you know, the fact is, is I think it needs to start with, you know, how do we help the growers sell more of their fruit at a really high price? And so that means we have to go look at those business development opportunities and those revenue growth opportunities for the grower. And then alongside of that, we can come and figure out the process of how we're going to get there. And we need to look at how do we make that process the most cost efficient that it can be. But I don't think that coming out the gate that we should have a mindset of trying to cut costs right out the gate. Instead, look for the new opportunity for the innovative opportunity that can really build revenue and then try to create a streamlined process behind that. And that's, that's really the approach we try to take. That's great. I like that. I think when you mentioned there's not really a budget for certain things, it's something that we're seeing more and more often now. And I think if you have the mindset of, you know, looking for better ways to do things or opportunities that those two really come into play with each other. No, 100%. So you kind of touched on this, but what is the process for managing and tracking company spend look like at your organization? 
Really, we have a weekly accounting meeting where we look at our financial statements. And by every Tuesday, we should have our books pretty up to date at that point because it's just the fact that we have weekend orders. So by Monday, we come in and we ensure that all the transactions are posted against those weekend orders. So then um, by Tuesday, we look at our financials for the previous week and we just really look at variances and we go try to fix variances at that point. But that's our method for finding if something is off and that we need to go check on further. And we'll go check on it, create a solution, then come back next week and it should be, it should be fixed at that point. That's really interesting to hear that you're checking in every week because I find when I ask this question, a lot of people are doing it monthly. And I think that's kind of where we come in to help people sometimes is when things aren't being followed as closely. So that's really interesting for me to hear that you're checking in on a weekly basis. And I think that that plays back into kind of your more liberal standpoint on spend culture as well, because there are those check-ins happening on a pretty regular basis. It helps you respond a lot better too before a problem becomes a much bigger issue. Yeah, absolutely. So the organic and whole food industry is becoming more and more popular. And obviously being in this industry, are there some considerations that are unique to you in terms of supply chain and purchasing? Yeah, the fact is, because organic is a growing segment, there's nobody really doing organic in large volumes. Therefore, you're not really getting economies of scale in the same way that conventional food is produced and distributed. And so say our counterparts in the conventional industry, they, uh, you know, they're shipping full truckloads product, uh, a particular, you know, on multiple orders, they're shipping full truckloads. While for us, we may only be taking a couple pallets. I should say we're only taking a couple pallet spaces on that truckload. And so we're just, everything happens at a smaller scale. Everything's happening in smaller quantities. And so, you know, we're at the stage where we really have to be creative to try to keep those costs down because, Although the demand is growing, the demand isn't at a point that our counterparts are seeing. And so we have to really be creative so that, you know, the organic industry as a whole isn't seen as extremely overpriced and that demand can continue to grow because people can afford the products and people want to go get the products. So that's really something that's unique to us is that we're shipping a lot smaller quantities. We're having to handle smaller quantities. Again, we work specifically with growers and you're going to find a lot of conventional growers can have anywhere from 20 to 50 to 100 to 200 plus acres of fruit products while we're working with organic growers that may just have five to 10 acres. And sometimes if even that, and they're kind of a weekend farmer and they're doing this as a labor of love. And so we're working without the economies of scale that our counterparts can do. And so we have to, again, be really creative about how we enter the market and that we're keeping costs down so that we can be competitive and more consumers want to buy our products. That's really interesting to hear, especially from a consumer standpoint. And it makes a lot of sense when you're looking at, like you said, economies of scale. So I appreciate your perspective on that. So the financial close seems to be a really big project for a lot of finance leaders that tends to take up a lot of time. Is there a way that you prepare for the close and maybe what are some of your learning lessons that the audience can take away from this? You know, we've come across some hurdles in our um, year-end close for 2018 that we're still even wrapping up a couple items. I'm I'm embarrassed or disappointed to say that, but um, it just is what it is. And so, you know, we're in the middle of it and we know walking away from it, some of the things that we need to do a bit better. Part of it was just the resource, the resources that we had available. And so, We've recently brought a person on our team that will be looking at the financial reporting on a much faster basis because 
it was really just me and an accounting manager that oversaw quite a few people. And the problem was it, it, that just from a resource perspective, we were pulled in so many different directions. So on a weekly basis, we weren't able to go respond sometimes as quickly as we wanted to when we saw variances or we saw question marks. And so we brought on another person in order to help us make this happen a lot faster. But again, I think the biggest thing is, is that you're looking at that, you're looking at your financials on a weekly basis so that you're able to catch things. But then, of course, you want to be sure that you have the resources that if you're catching things on a weekly basis, you have the person or the people that can actually go fix those problems fast enough so that they don't carry on too too far along later. So that's the biggest thing is that you're really checking your books on a regular basis. You're checking for deviations and you're working to fix them as fast as you can and making sure that you have the resources to do that. Mm-hmm. Working at a startup, we experience similar uh, issues within all of our teams. You know, things are moving really quickly and you only have limited resources. And sometimes there's things that you catch, but you don't have the resources at that time to really deal with the situation. And so I think, like you said, just having those check-ins and trying to be on top of things as much as possible. But at the end of the day, nobody's perfect. And I think it's more common than not to hear these kinds of stories. It's a learning process for sure, because what works for one organization may not necessarily work for the other organization. You could take people's best use cases and their their um, and take their experience, but you're really going to have to figure out what works for you. And I, this kind of goes back to your first question. I, I think the people is is the toughest part, and it, you really have to get the right people on board in order to move the direction that you want to move. And so I'm glad that we we're getting there at this point. But yeah, you, you have to get the right people on board for sure. And kind of on the same topic, in your experience, how do accounting processes usually change and scale within organizations, especially as they grow? I could answer this question by saying what I think usually happens, but instead, I'll answer Mm -hmm. based upon what I think needs to happen. Everything needs to be simplified. We're walking through that a lot now because we built a business that is highly relational and highly customer service focused. But that meant that we often changed a lot of our systems to fit with whatever a customer or grower wanted. And as we've grown to a certain point, that causes some pain points for the organization because you continually try to grow while trying to maintain a budget and not adding too many people onto your staff. And not to say, you know, that adding people isn't a good thing. It's just it's a fixed cost and, and you have to be weary about how many people you're going to hire because if you do have a down year, the last thing that you want to do is to actually let somebody go. I, I, I do not feel comfortable with having to let somebody go as a result of just a poor business performance year. So we keep in mind that we're trying to scale appropriately where we would never have to have that happen. We know though that instead of just throwing more resources at a problem, and we know that we're going to have to simplify our value offering and our value proposition. And so we may not be all things to all customers, but because we've built relationships with many customers, we can define who are the most important customers to us and who are the most important growers to us. And we can you know, continue to define that a little bit more. And so that we ultimately have the opportunity to say, you know what, operating in this particular space of the market, that doesn't necessarily work for us. We're a little bit more streamlined to doing something like this over here. So again, it's really simplifying it and trying to really highlight your value proposition and your offering. And I think that that's what's important is that accounting processes need to keep up with that. And, you know, things need to be be made simplified because otherwise, if things are super complex, those things aren't going to scale very well as you're going to have to add new tools and new systems on top of it. If things are really complicated underneath, it's simply not going to scale because you're going to have to have 
these super experts on how your accounting software works, for example, that's expensive to have. Again, from a scaling and growth standpoint, I think every business needs to continually think about how do we simplify what we're doing so that we really have a strong value proposition and offering, and we can make sure that we do better at that value offering than anybody else in the market. That's really interesting. I like the point about things being simple or not too overcomplicated because I think, like you said, in terms of scaling, having people be able to adapt to the system or the process is just as important. And having really complicated things in place is just going to make it that much more challenging for you. Totally. The finance department and accountants in general, we scare people often with how difficult we can make things. And a part of it is just because we operate in a rules-based environment, um, right? That we have to we have to comply with GAP, U.S. GAAP or IFRS, et cetera, and different regulations. We have to comply with the tax codes, and so there's a lot of rules that you know we have to understand. But the thing is, is that we still have to try to simplify it as much as possible because otherwise, we're not going to be enjoyed by other departments in the organization. Because if we try to make systems that are too complicated, they're going to be frustrated with us. They're not going to understand that, you know, we're trying to help them grow the business. I think it's tough for finance and accountants to think of simplifying it, but that's the one skill set that I think we all need to learn a lot better is how do we take something that's super complex and try to break it down so that somebody from the fifth grade can understand it. And when we're able to do that, we're able to just focus on building the business at that point in time. I absolutely agree. And kind of touching on that, I know that you talked about having the weekly meetings about finances, but are there any software or tools that you're currently using to help you measure, track, and report spend? No, not necessarily. I would love to see us use more, but um, we use an accounting software that is specific to our industry, specific to the produce industry. And I know that this accounting company, they're, they're going through um, their growth phase as well and trying to uh, you know, understand and trying to develop tools that will help companies better be able to manage their variances and be, be able to use their data better. But because we've had to use something that's so specific to our industry, right? Like this is exactly what I'm talking about, that because we've created this tool that's specific to our industry, we can't easily mm-hmm. sit other applications on top of this accounting software. So if I wanted to get a platform that helps me do invoice approval and um, that has algorithms that can allow you know, for automatic postings of transactions. I know that that software is out there, but it can't necessarily sit on our accounting system. And so it's exactly what I'm saying in regards to the idea that we have to cr- try to create things that are simple, but not you know, overcomplicated um, so that we can continue to grow and scale because those tools are, and those applications are being built out there and we can't take advantage of them, that's that's going to put us in a really scary position because there's going to be others that will figure out how to do that. But yeah, to answer your question, we don't necessarily have any specific tools except just we look at our financial reporting and we look at our actual numbers versus our budget numbers and we see if there's a particular variance and deep dive from that point and go check things out more. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And it's I honestly really great to hear that you're taking that time to do it and look into it because I think being proactive is such a huge piece. Um, and it's something that we really encourage people to do as well. And like you said, you can have a great accounting system, but if it's way too specific or complicated, then you're going to run into problems later down the road. Yeah. Now, I know we kind of talked about mentors and people that you look up to um, in the industry, but are there ways that you continue your learning? Are there any books or blogs that you listen to? What's kind of your favorite thing for your own learning? I'm the manager on LinkedIn for a group called Finance Value Creation. 
where the goal is to really sh- have people share their own experiences rather than just, you know, sharing articles um, upon the technicalities of FP&A, accounting, whatever the case is. Instead, we really encourage people to share their own experiences and challenges that they're facing and things that they've learned. That's a cool resource to check out. Otherwise, I'm a big proponent of going and getting certified. I'm a certified management accountant. I'm a CMA. And then I'm actually working on an FP&A certification as well. For me, at least, those are some really neat ways to continue to learn. The big thing is, is that I can read a book, but the certification actually tests me. So I really have to dig into the material a lot more in order to ensure that I'm actually taking away what the books are saying. And so I appreciate that about the certifications is that because it tests you, you really do begin to absorb the material a lot better. And so, yeah, I, I encourage certifications because it's a great way to continue to learn and you'll end up, you tend to be a part of organizations like I'm a part of the Association of Financial Professionals. I'm part of the Institute of Management Accountants. I'm a member of both those groups. And those memberships are great because they have a lot of resources as well for people to listen to, whether it be podcasts, whether it be video casts, whether it be speaker events, whether it be webinars, whatever the case is. So certifications are a great way to continue to learn. And then being a part of some professional organizations like Association of Finance, Finance Professionals and um, the Institute of Management Accountants. Those are great ways to stay involved and learn more in your industry as well. No, that's great. And I I like what you said about the LinkedIn group as well. I think that I was just speaking with someone else about this. People are always willing to talk about all the things that they're doing well, but I think we learn the most from where people have had challenges or things have gone wrong. So having a space where people can be open about that and communicate those things to people in their industry as well is, is really great. I think LinkedIn is going to transform a lot over the next couple of years from just being a headhunting or a job search site to being a collaborative tool where people are really sharing their experiences and being able to network in that manner of sharing value in that way of people connecting and wanting to talk with each other and really engage about you know the challenges that they're facing, things that they're wanting to learn. I definitely see it as a tool that's going to be used much more in that way. So I I think people should get on that curve now because it's definitely going to transform in a big way to, to become a platform that focuses on that type of value rather than just trying to get the next job, but instead a lot of people sharing and learning amongst each other. No, I think that's a great point. I, I obviously am on there a lot for the recruitment side of things, but I'm slowly seeing more and more informative things happening and lots of learning and sharing between yeah. different professionals. So I definitely agree. And I, I also look forward to seeing where things go on there. And kind of looking at the state of things in the next few years in terms of spend culture, where do you think that this will take us in the next five years? What kind of trends do you think that we'll see? Companies that are doing things right and growing, I think that they're really going to see that they really can't change their spending habits in regards to how employees are interacting as a team and building that teamwork. So again, you know, at Homegrown, we pretty much have an open business meals budget for the intention that people can go out and they can go out and they can have a meal with each other and build that trust and build that relationship. And that's one thing that I don't think should change. And I don't think will change that in our hyper-connected world, building good quality connections and um, building good quality relationships is still really, really tough and it only gets tougher. And so companies will truly realize though that even though there's applications like Slack that do make some forms of communication easier, all different types of applications, the fact is nothing beats a one-to-one conversation and just building a relationship with somebody else. And so I think companies will definitely continue to spend dollars on building their teams in that way of building that teamwork and getting people together. 
I think that that's going to be really, really important. I, I think there's still going to be a strong focus in there. I think how the dollars will be spent in that area may change. You know, I, I read an article recently that they talked about how the open workspaces um, are going away because people have found that they actually don't encourage teamwork because, or I shouldn't say they don't encourage teamwork, but it makes it so that people really can't focus that well. So if there's a digression to people each having their own offices, that means that people aren't necessarily going to be able to go talk to another person as easily. So there's going to have to be spend happening to cultivate those connections in a different way, ultimately, so that people don't become siloed and people can continue to add value with each other. So that's something that I really see as static in terms of company spend. I think in general, people are going to continue to get really better about how they manage their spend and being able to check the variances because more and more we're seeing systems that can take invoices and take expense reports and automate them and have workflows for approvals that are a lot more streamlined. Um, they can automate a lot of the posting activities and the verification activities of invoices. And so I just see that accountants won't necessarily have to focus on that. Instead, a lot of that is going to be automated so that decision makers like myself or others, um, they're going to have the data at their, at their fingertips and be able to respond even faster. So people saying that, you know, they respond, you know, once a month, I think that those people will begin to be able to respond once a week. And then it, it could even be more minute than that, that they'll be able to respond within the next couple of days kind of thing. So I think that's the big thing is that because that information is going to be available on a quicker basis and is going to be able to be verified properly through, you know, algorithms, machine learning, et cetera, people are going to have data at their fingertips to make decisions a lot faster. So that's what I see as well. I really like that you touched on the people aspect first. I find oftentimes when I ask this question, everyone jumps right to technology, but I think that looking at the people side of things is so important. And no matter how much things become automated or run by robots, it's the people that are on the receiving end of it and the ones that are usually operating them. And so having the focus on that, I think is super important. Yeah, no, 100%. People are the most important part of how we build a business. And so it's really important that people are working as a team well, people are interacting, engaging well. So that means you're going to have to spend the dollars to encourage that appropriately. You do not want to stifle that by any means. I agree 100%. And I think that's a great place to finish off. Um, I've really enjoyed your perspective. I think at the end of it, everything came back to the people for most part. And I think that's something that's really important for companies. And it definitely shows in your productivity and the happiness of your employees. So thank you again for joining us. I've really appreciated your honesty and your perspective on things. And I know that our audience is going to be excited to hear about it as well. I'm very appreciative to contribute. And yeah, I really thank you for this opportunity. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Spend Culture Stories podcast, sponsored by Procurify. If you'd like to learn more about your spend culture, take our quiz at spendculture.com.